Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Healthcare workers are on the front line of dealing with coronavirus. Their immediate concern has been in securing appropriate equipment to ensure their safety in dealing with patients. However, they also need to access psychological and other supports both now and in the longer term. Mary Leahy is the National Coordinator for Nurse and Midwife Safety, Health and Wellbeing. What are the biggest issues facing frontline workers? Well, the biggest issue at the moment, um, obviously, is COVID-19 and, and all of the issues that brings. So primarily it's PPE. And you've heard a lot about that in, the, in, in national media in the last two or three weeks. Do, do you believe that there is unnecessary exposure to COVID-19 as a result of, of a lack of, of PPE? Well, there has been a lot of issues, Deirdre. Um, I guess nobody foresaw this um, international crisis and we're all pulling from the same suppliers nationwide, you know, in a global market with a global crisis. It's obviously very, very pressurised for a lot of people. Um, so, yes, there's, there are serious problems on the front line in that um, COVID is highly infectious. And in, the num- in, in more recent weeks, we've learned just how infectious. So we're learning about COVID as it unfolds as well. And nurses, doctors, physiotherapists and other frontline staff are very concerned because there have been periods of time that they have been either short of PPE or it has been inappropriate um, provision of PPE or inappropriate uh, masks, for example, there are different ranges of masks for different scenarios. Some areas are much higher risk than others. So in, in some instances, it would have been the, the incorrect masks available. So staff have been quite anxious and fearful around that issue. And have you any knowledge of the, the, the recent shipments from China and what the quality of the PPE from that was like? I do, um, Deirdre. I've had colleagues um, relate that to me. Um, some of them, some of them have been quite upset because I guess they were holding out for some reprieve and and this, uh, you know, very large delivery that was coming. And there was some pockets of disappointment. Clearly, some of the delivery is fine and some of it isn't. And that's been in the, in the media. I think in the last twenty four hours, I think um, Paul Reid was relating to approximately twenty percent of it being inappropriate. So um, definitely in Galway, um, there were issues with regard to the quality of masks, um, the standard of masks, and also that there was no English uh, translation that came with the use of PPE. So some of the staff were using Google Translate to actually try and understand, to learn more about the product and to see, you know, what areas were suitable to use in. Was the equipment very different to that which you were familiar it would have been different, if not from my, my personal experience, because I don't use it. I'm not exposed in that manner. But it would have been um, very different for the staff who were used to that. There's, we're all getting used to, um, I suppose, PPE is personal protective equipment. We're all getting used to, to new terminology in the last few weeks. We're hearing words we've never heard before. There are masks called FFP2 and FFP3, which are used in intensive areas such as theatre and intensive care. And there are other ordinary surgical masks which are more appropriate for for non for areas of less intensity. So um, a lot of staff wouldn't have been used to this language up to up to now. You know, maybe the staff that are used to working in in intensive areas would have been, but an awful lot of staff weren't. And we have the issue as well where staff have been redeployed into areas that they're not used to. So there's a lot of um, upheaval for staff. They're concerned on a personal level about their own safety. 
they're concerned because they know they're being exposed sometimes without uh, the appropriate PPE. And they're concerned because they're redeployed into areas of high intensity that they weren't formally trained for. So there's a lot of upskilling going on in a very short period of time. And then there's more fear. Um, staff are experiencing more fear from the point of view of fear with returning home to their own families after work. Um, you know, the fear of infecting their own children and their own partners. So there's, there's fear, I suppose, from a lot of angles affecting frontline staff. We watched as the disease escalated in China first and then around the globe. Did we act fast enough, do you think? I suppose it's easy to be on the sidelines, Deirdre, and, and be critical. But um, about five weeks ago, I became involved with a, um, a group of consultants and nurses and a number of um, politicians and media also joined. And the group grew very quickly from about 100 to 3,000 and we connected with China and Italy through that group and a lot of papers were coming from Italy and China and we were learning on our feet really and sharing that information among ourselves and with our colleagues and a, a result of that I set up a COVID nurses group and we were passing papers over and back to, really we were trying to learn quickly on our feet because this was unfolding and you'll recall yourself that um, initially we were all led to believe that this was an illness that would primarily affect older people. And then as the weeks went on, we could see that it was affecting younger people and it seemed to have a random effect where some people had underlying conditions and some people didn't. So um, I, I can't be critical of how fast, I, I, I suppose I could be critical on one level that I felt strongly that um, flights coming in from Italy should have been dealt with in a different manner. And I believe that the Cheltenham uh, Festival shouldn't have uh, proceeded. And if it did, there should have been more quarantining and um, and safety nets put on at our ports and airports. So um, on reflection, you can be critical um, regarding the actual management on a medical basis. I, I can't be critical because I don't think anybody could have foreseen what has happened but I have to be to praise an awful lot of the innovation that's going on now we have got together with industry um, politicians the amount of innovation that we're experiencing among ourselves even on our COVID group where there are over 3,000 people we've worked with industry we have tried out products we've encouraged Irish businesses to get on board and we have um, facilitated them in prototyping various elements of PPE and other equipment um, directly into clinical environments so that we can perfect design and help those industries to help us. So there's been huge cooperation and innovation and it has made me proud as a citizen of this country to see what our country can do in a crisis. You launched a new fundraising organisation, uh, Heroes Aid, last week. Uh, why did you feel you needed to do that? Well, I did that, Deirdre, because... Um, a number of weeks ago, I could see the level of distress among my colleagues and the fear that was presenting um, regarding, you know, being contaminated themselves and all of the other associated issues that I've described. And I've always had an interest in staff welfare. Um, I would have represented um, colleagues on a national stage in the past. And I've always believed that if you're if you look after the frontline staff and, and, and indeed all staff, that they're better equipped to, to give a better standard of patient care and all of the research would support that. So I became involved because I had offers um, made to me by um, anonymous individuals to fund PPE because they, the ordinary individual could see what was unfolding. So I started to access PPE um, or to assist business people to access it because I knew the standards that were required and I had that background. And then I came to the attention of Conor McGregor and he donated a million euro 
So I had, you know, a lot of expertise built up with how to source uh, equipment and how to what, what the issues were among frontline staff. So I became very busy with that. And then I could see really that the nurses group that I had set up, the COVID group, was hugely um, beneficial to nurses and they relied on it. And the issues that were coming to me in that group were clear. So I, I felt there was a need to set up a group and to support staff. I think that um, a lot of people came to me and offered psychological help to frontline staff. And the feedback that I got from my colleagues was they're not actually in a position, they're not receptive to psychological help until the PPE is sorted because they feel so exposed and so fearful. So I think if that issue was dress, addressed in itself, then we could move forward to help the frontline staff in other areas, to help them with their psychological help and to help support them to do a good job on the front line. And in addition, when we're looking at what happened to staff in Italy, you know, we're to some extent there a month ahead of us. So we're learning from what's happening over there and staff have been hugely traumatised. We've had staff, um, frontline workers in Italy who've had to intubate their colleagues, um, care for their own colleagues. They've also been exposed to a lot of uh, mortality among patients in a very short space of time. And they've also had the moral dilemmas, and we've all read about it in the media, where they've had to take um, people off ventilators to put people that they deemed to have a better chance of survival onto a ventilator. And with that brings a huge amount of moral distress and moral injury because frontline professionals are educated in a very high ethical and moral way to treat all people the same and to give everybody, um, I suppose, a standard of care that they're able to. We've never been in a position as healthcare professionals before where you felt that you had to, you know, uh, give care to one and you couldn't give it to another. So you can foresee all of the trauma and and, and stress that could be coming down the line for frontline workers. And in that regard, I just feel it's hugely important to support them and I feel I've got a, I'm in a good place to do that because I have a, a deep understanding as a healthcare professional myself I have a deep understanding of what's involved. What kind of form do you think that longer term psychological care will take for for workers? Well, I guess we're dealing with the unknown. At the moment, you can see the acute stress where frontline workers are suffering a lot of anxiety over being placed into high intensive areas and, and, and untrained formally to, to manage that. So there's immediate stress and, and that's very apparent to us already. But we're kind of preempting what may happen down the line. We don't know. We're trying to keep the curve down to stop the intense um, flooding of our of our healthcare services. So if we can manage to keep that curve flat, the the onslaught into our primary or into our acute services wouldn't be as bad. So, but if that curve isn't kept down, there'll be serious pressure on frontline staff, and with that will come all sorts of moral dilemmas and ethical dilemmas. So we can't absolutely say how it's going to unfold because a lot of that is in the hands of our of our citizens and of the people of the state if if they adhere to the advice that has been given. But um, a best case scenario, I suppose we're going to have a level of trauma among staff because of burnout, because of fatigue uh, and because of the trauma of what they're going through and the fear that they're carrying on, on a possibly a subconscious level every day. And worst case scenario is that, you know, we, we have to be realistic. We could lose some of our colleagues because they're citizens too. Um, and if And hopefully we don't. But even if we don't, they will witness a lot of mortality if we don't keep this curve down. 
So in that regard, um, we are being open to helping colleagues. And only last night I spoke to a psychotherapist to ask him. He's linking with some academics who have, who are specialising in trauma. And he's preparing some short um, YouTube presentations for colleagues so that when they come home from work, be it whatever time of the day and night, because bearing in mind we're all 24-7 service, and that when they come home, whenever they're feeling overwhelmed or exhausted or, or upset or stressed, that they could log in and get some element of support and guidance as to how to deal with their own personal stress. So we're setting, the HSE already have some tools available which are very useful, but we're just adding to that and we put that, we link that onto our website so the frontline staff can have that immediate help because we have to be reasonable and practical. Frontline staff can't go for one-on-one sessions at the moment because of the the um, social isolation and because they're too tired and too burnt out and too stressed in the front line to, you know, to isolate that time for themselves. So we have to make it sort of easy for them to access. And I think the best way to do that is to have short, meaningful sessions online that they can just log into if and when they feel they need to. We, we talk about the front line uh, a lot, Mary, and and indeed uh, learning from the experience elsewhere in terms of the longer term supports that can be put in place for workers. Um, but obviously it's also similar to kind of a wartime situation and I'm sure there are uh, learnings that you're planning to take from people who have worked in, in wartime situations in the healthcare sector. Absolutely. I mean, as I, the one example I've given is that with the, the psychological help where we're, we're now feel we can reach out. Everybody's offering so much of their time and skills on a voluntary basis. And last night I contacted an, an eminent uh, psychotherapist and psychologist and he was more than happy to do the research in Europe over near Italy and to put together something that would be useful. So obviously we, we, we can already see the learning on a practical level also where we've all had to quickly, to some extent, work outside our boundaries and work outside our skill set, work with private industry in quickly providing the essentials that are needed on the front line. You know, for example, um, if a nurse can have a monitor where she can remotely monitor a patient, it saves putting on a necessary set of PPEs. So we're thinking outside the box of ways to to be able to keep patients safe, to keep ourselves safe, and also avoid the unnecessary wastage of PPE. Um, it has shown us uh, on the front line as well um, the innovation that we have in Ireland among our our medical device industry. We're working directly with them now on a voluntary basis in our own time. And it's just incredible, the the, um, the innovation and the skills that, that we have in our own country. But there's one thing we have seen that's been a barrier, really, is the bureaucracy and the red tape, which really, when all this is over, I think it's difficult for anybody in industry to reinvent themselves right now and to get the help at government level and get the information that's necessary to quickly respond to an emergency and to respond to a crisis. So I think when all this is over, our country will be an awful lot better. There's an awful lot of learning happening and there'll be a lot of reflection and putting together of all that learning when this is all over. And I hope we don't have to face into something like this again, but if we do, I have no doubt we'd be far better prepared. What kind of products are Irish companies coming up with from your point of view? Um, Well, the first thing we worked, I mentioned we have a group of over 3,000 clinicians in in a COVID group and we all are such a a wide 
vast backgrounds. I mean, my, my most recent clinical role was public health. So, and somebody else working in intensive care, we'd be miles apart on skill set. So we all sort of fell into our interests. And the groups that I worked on was um, providing uh, safe visors. So we dealt, we wanted to, obviously, we're hugely into promoting Ireland and promoting getting our products as close to home as we can. So we worked with a company in Northern Ireland who were a blind and curtain company and they quickly adapted to producing face visors, but they didn't have the the skill set as to what we required. So we worked in partnership and they sent out samples and we dispersed the samples to various clinical areas, got the feedback immediately by WhatsApp from colleagues and shot that back to the company for them to perfect their product and in no time at all, they were producing the face visors. Now, the face visor is hugely important because, and we know the COVID enters the body through the mouth, nose or eyes. So it's important to keep staff shielded from those splashes. So that was hugely beneficial to us. And another um, uh, subgroup that I worked on was providing aerosol boxes. And uh, we know from Taiwan that um, when you're intubating or extubating a patient in intensive care, and, and to the ordinary listener, that's where you, you know, you put the tube down into the, the, um, the trachea to inflate the, art, the lungs artificially if somebody is that ill. And we know that during that procedure, um, the COVID-19 becomes airbound and it disperses within the air, which puts clinicians and other patients in that area at risk. And we, we know that from a bit of research that the clinicians in Taiwan used a like a plastic box and if you I suppose in your mind if you think of it it's like a fish tank turned upside down and placed over the the upper trunk and head of the patient and with with holes at the side where the clinicians can work to to mask the patient and intubate and just and prevent the dispersal of COVID from going into the atmosphere so that was a safety mechanism and in very very short space of time that um, device was produced and now I know it's been produced in the Republic. Um, we've worked with some other companies that have come on board. Boston Scientific is one of them. They produced a design in 24 hours, basically. So all of these things are hugely beneficial to keeping clinicians safe and keeping other patients in the vicinity safe. There's also work being done on um, best use of ventilators. Uh, we're looking at uh, sterilization methods and because now the Americans are sterilizing some elements of their PPE and reusing them, which is environmentally and financially sound. So we're looking in to see what other countries are doing and our medical industry are working with us and quickly responding to that need. So it's, it's, it's been really wonderful to see that. Do you believe, Mary, the measures we've taken in Ireland are working or are starting to work? I do, yeah. I am encouraged by, um, I, I, even as a citizen, I was very concerned about four weeks ago when, when, you know, people in my social circle would text me, they were in the pub. I just couldn't believe what was happening and that the message wasn't getting through. But I think over the next two weeks, you know, there's a heightened, um, people are on high alert, even to go into a supermarket, you know, the way that the, the queues are being managed very well. A certain amount of people going into stores together, people, people keeping well away from each other in stores. So I think really people have taken this very, very seriously, especially in the last two weeks. So uh, and we can see by the graphs so far, we are keeping the curve down. There's absolutely no room for complacency. And we have to sacrifice now to save life effectively. So I think we're, we're on the cusp. I think there's hope. And, um, but it takes all of us, every single one of us. Just yourself, how do you look after your own psychological 
profile, I suppose, when you're, you know, trying to cope with healthcare workers who are maybe dealing with difficult situations? How do you ensure that you stay in the right frame of mind to be able to help them? I guess, Deirdre, how I'd answer that is I've... um I have a lot of experience representing um, nurses. I've been, I was a rep with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation for going right back to when I qualified as a midwife myself. And I had some stents in politics and I have the type of personality that I, people call me a fixer. I just, when I see a problem, I'm just drawn to fixing it. So I'm that type of an individual. I, I'm, I get a, a sort of, I suppose a personal satisfaction out of helping others and fixing problems. And I, I'm not shy about picking up the phone and, and fixing issues and I've done that in the last few weeks so I, I feel fairly I feel I'm, a, I'm, I'm skilled in that area and and how I then deal with my own sort of I suppose mental health in that area is I'm, I'm an energetic person I, I put in long hours um, I get out for my, my 5k walk keeping within the 2k boundaries because I've got a nice um, a nice 5k circle around my home so I'm never more than 2k away but it's still to get fresh air I don't often feel like doing it but I know that the benefits are huge so I make myself do it and also some little skills that I would actually talk to myself and I think we're, we're all, we all got used to that recently because we're not seeing many other we're not, we're not having any contact with others but I tell myself on a regular basis uh, um, what I have achieved for the day rather than I, I, the old me used to tell is to be critical of myself with what wasn't ticked off on my list but I found particularly in the last few months that I'm getting better at looking what I did tick off on my list and reminding myself that I'm only human and within the group that we've set up in Heroes Aid we've an amazing team in the background and we've set up a WhatsApp group and we're supporting each other. Um, there are people on that group um, that they're just amazing and some of them have personally experienced um, mental health challenges in the past. So we're all well in tuned. And even last night, one of my team uh, reminded me last night that it was time to stop at about half 10 and it was time to stop saving the world, the world to you. <laughs> so, yeah, so I kind of thought, yeah, it is time to stop saving the world. You know, you have to switch off every now and then. And um, But I have to say I'm hugely energised by being able to do this work and by seeing very fast, practical outcomes and and benefits. I'm not one for long-term strategies that end up in a shelf gathering dust. It actually frustrates me. I don't like uh, meetings about meetings about meetings. And I think what's been wonderful about COVID is we've crossed boundaries that we never thought we'd do before. And I've picked up the phone to the IDA and I've they've put me onto IBEC and IBEC has put me onto Boston Scientific and within 24 hours, Boston Scientific had a medical device made. So it's that level of innovation that it's empowering. And it, that to me, it benefits my mental health to be able to see progress. Thanks very much for talking to us, Mary. Thank you for asking me. Thank you, Deirdre. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.